at the end of that one hour long meeting, when I sent these tribesmen packing is really when it dawned on me in a very clear way that Procter & Gamble can be successful in Pakistan while adhering fully to P&G's principles and values. Because people had said to me that, listen, there will come a time when you just will have to bend a little bit. I also learned that there is no such thing as bending a little bit when it comes to basic principles and values. You either stick by them or you don't. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, Kasser Sharif, P&G's former head of Pakistan. Yeah, Raman, this was a really thoughtful conversation about living and working outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, you know, the first time I heard about Kasser was from... Uh, the famous John Pepper mentioning his book, which I snatched up and read immediately. So I've been wanting to talk to Caster for a while. And hey, man, that's why you start a podcast. So <laughs> here's a quick bio. Caster Sharif spent a 30-year career at Procter & Gamble, where he most recently led the company's operations in Pakistan, which is actually an organization that he helped build for the company many years prior when P&G was first starting their business in the country. During his time with P&G, Caster also held country leadership roles for the Ukraine, uh, he's the author of When Tribesmen Came Calling, Building an Enduring American Business in Pakistan, which is, uh, I can't say enough, a fantastic read. Kasser is based in the Washington, D.C. area. He serves on the board of Hope USA and executive committee of the U.S. Pakistan Foundation. He is also on the board of Open DC, an organization of Pakistani entrepreneurs. He's serving on the board of Transparent Hands, a crowdfunding platform that assists the underprivileged in covering healthcare costs. And earlier this year, he was elected president of the Montgomery County Muslim Council. He's an advisory partner to Ward Howell International Global Executive Recruiting and Management Consultancy. He also teaches an adjunct faculty in the MBA program at uh, George Washington University in the Department of International Business. And he has a Bachelor of Science degree in Management from the Middle East Technical University in Ankara, Turkey, and an MBA from the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. Yeah, which is all quite impressive. <laughs> he retires from PNG, and then it seems like he's doing even more now. Uh, but what I loved about the the entire conversation was hearing about his perspectives, you know, hearing the perspectives from not just the other side of the world and about the other side of the world, but from someone who's from there. Yeah. And he, he does this really good job of bridging the two worlds. A lot of the time, you'll meet an executive who got their entire education, started the company in the local office, and then got their gig in the West. Versus with Castor, it's a little different. He got his education and started his career in the West, and then went back home. And we talk a little bit about the relationship between India and Pakistan. If you don't know the history about partition, while he is Pakistani, he has a lot of roots in India, which is kind of similar to my family. Well, my parents are Indian. My father's family has a lot of roots in Pakistan. It's just a really, I don't want to say complicated situation, but it's a very interwoven situation where a lot of family history comes from because of the history of these two countries. 
Yeah, which I mean, he also then dives deeper into with with the book, which he you know talks a little bit about, and, and we've talked a little bit about writing a book on on previous episodes as well. But one of the things that he goes into is the importance of the name, right? I, I remember coming up with names for my own book. Like I'm a I'm a very like engineering logical person. So the first book that I wrote is 501 Ways to Use Humor in the Workplace because it's a list of 501 ways to use humor in the workplace. And then I was going to write a book about me going to all 50 states in a year when I was a nomad. And my my title was going to be 50 States, 50 Stories because it was 50 stories from 50 states. And then my editor was like, no, you need a much better title. And they came up with United States of Laughter, which is like, that is a way better title. And so the the title of the book has a lot to do with kind of framing things, which I think was something that that he took very seriously when thinking about what he could call the book versus what he actually did. Yeah, I mean... The title of the book, like I said, or the first title, because every book has to have two titles now, but When Tribesmen Came Calling, that provokes and evokes an image in your mind. And he talks about the story of all the titles he went through, because for him, it was important for Castor to simplify, or I should say not simplify, the danger of the situation, but also he needed to call out the facts as he saw them. So we as readers can make our own interpretation. And Again, throughout not just that story, but hearing stories of his his management experience, it's just he has this really valuable and thoughtful perspective, which is always wonderful to hear. So uh, let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Kasser Sharif. Kasser, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. So Kasser, a lot of people might already know your professional story, a 30-year career with P&G with country leadership roles and Pakistan and the Ukraine. And then since leaving, you're now in DC working as a consultant to businesses, serving on the boards of a lot of really interesting nonprofits involved with emerging markets. You've taught international marketing at GW, and you let your commentary be known. You're actually writing op-eds for newspapers back in Pakistan. And there's so much in there that I want to ask about in this conversation. But (laughs) before we do that, I'd love to hear a story about who you were before you began your career journey. Sure. I grew up in Pakistan. I come from a family where education was really highly valued. My dad was a civil engineer. He supervised the construction of the first nuclear reactor in Pakistan. His father, my grandfather, was a Cambridge-educated barrister who worked in London as a lawyer and then moved back to India in those days. But anyhow, I, I grew up in Pakistan. I finished high school there. And then had an opportunity, I got a scholarship to go to Turkey to get my undergraduate at in Ankara at the Middle East Technical University, after which I came to the U.S. and did my MBA from University of Cincinnati in Ohio. So that's very quickly, you know, I mean, interesting thing is that I, I was actually born in India, uh, was a couple of weeks old when my parents moved me to Pakistan. And that would have been around partition, correct? Actually, they moved around partition. I was born much later, but my mother was still traveling back and forth between her parents and her in-laws' places in India and th- their own home in Pakistan. So that's how I ended up being born in India, because my mother decided to go back to her parents' place and have her children born there, the first couple of us. And is there anything specific from your childhood that you remember that kind of maybe shaped what you wanted to do, what you wanted to study? Yeah, it's interesting because I uh, grew up in a family of uh, engineers and doctors, and I was good in quantitative 
subjects because my father was working on construction of a nuclear reactor. He would often take me with him. So I developed an interest in, in sciences and I was good at math. And it was kind of a expected that I would somehow go into an engineering or, or some, some kind of scientific field. But the older I got, meaning as I went through middle school and high school, I felt more and more that that's not where my interest lied. So I started to think of business. I wanted to be in a field that at least gave me some visibility as to what kind of career I could have. But so I almost got into business through a process of elimination, not wanting to be a doctor, not wanting to be an, <laughs> an engineer. At one time, I even played around with the idea of somehow studying nuclear physics and so on. So that's how I sort of ended up studying business management in my undergrad and then my MBA. So this might be a very American or Western question, because I, I guess, what was the first way you made money? Or was that not a thing? It was just No, no, I tell you. Well, no, no, I tell you it was. As I said, I, I went to, uh, for, for my undergraduate, I went to university in Ankara. Okay. And every summer I would, or most summers, I would travel to Europe. So one summer I went to London, where I had a cousin who had offered that I could stay with her and her husband. So I went there and I worked for the whole summer at a Kentucky Fried Chicken shop in, <laughs> in Brixton, London, which in those days, back in the 70s, it was known to be a pretty rough neighborhood. And my shift was from about 2 p.m. usually till about 2 a.m., which is when the store closed. It was just a carry out little hole in the wall kind of KFC. So that was my, my first time that I worked. Uh, I think I worked there for about two months. I was trying to save money to buy a stereo, which I did, and carried back with me to college. So that was it. Now I, I hear that Brixton has become quite a trendy neighborhood. I haven't been there since I worked when it was a rough neighborhood. That's so great. that was my first opportunity actually earning money. That was not on your LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That's true. So how are you similar from that young man who wanted the stereo in Brixton? One of the things that I have done throughout my educational career as well as my professional career is that I have tried to pursue things that I really enjoy and sometimes not worrying too much about how exactly it will impact longer term my prospects in a job or in being a in the moment, being in the moment. But also I just knew that I will only be happy if I'm doing things that I enjoy. So I took a lot of chances. I mean, you know, you somewhere in there, you, you always read about forks in your, in your career and forks in your life. And I've had so many, and I've been lucky that whenever I made a decision, which at that point was very hard to assess what is right, what is not, turned out to be in most cases, the good decision. So really how I have changed is, while I've always stood up and spoken out about what I believed in, I think over the years, what I have learned is to choose my words carefully. I don't think as a younger person, I always did that. <laughs> so I think that is where I have seen myself growing and maturing. Well, I have to ask, can you relay any examples from your youth where maybe you made a mistake and you didn't choose your words carefully? There's not a specific example, but I was constantly getting into uh, big heated discussions with my friends and colleagues and, and even with my professors in the courses that I took. I mean, if I felt that something they were saying was different from what I believed, I would challenge them and I would ask them and so on. And what I have learned is that, yes, you can do that and you speak your mind, but sometimes it's very easy to slip into language that really just creates a lot of hurt or it just creates acrimony, which is not necessary. The other thing I've learned is that it is not necessary to win 
all arguments. It's not even necessary to argue about everything. So yeah, there's a really good saying a manager once told me that it's more important to be effective than it is to be right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So to shift gears a little bit to your career, you know, your journey to the global corporate citizenship did not follow the same pattern of the modern foreign-born executive. And and maybe I'm casting a stereotype, but the ones I've had the privilege of working with usually start in their country of origin at the company, right? The Pakistan version of PNG or the Ukrainian version. They work their way up to the global corporate chain, maybe to a regional office, and they get the global assignment to headquarters, and then, you know, general manager, head of a country, et cetera. But that wasn't your story. Other than the academic start in Turkey overseas, it followed a very similar path to that of a U.S. business student. So I guess, what lessons did you learn from that multi-country education journey that eventually landed? You didn't come to Cincinnati for P&G. You came to Cincinnati mm-hmm. for school. That's right. In a sort of a backdoor way, it was having been at the Cincinnati Business School that got me introduced to P&G and then gave me an opportunity to interview there and ultimately get a job. But yeah, I have, again... Some people, so many people I know have had a very focused mindset about what they want to do, what kind of career and so on. And I was always just pushing to move along a certain path, but not so strictly defining what kind of career it would lead to. And when I finished my MBA at at Cincinnati, I had at that time, I was still a foreign citizen, foreign student here and had the possibility to work for a year in the US before having to go back. And I... Also, at that time, being on a student visa, it was a very difficult time to get a job of the kind that I wanted. So what I, years would this have been? This- I finished my MBA in 1979. Okay, okay. So, uh, and I didn't join PNG till 81. And those are another two years, which are a gap in my resume because it just becomes too much detail. But I actually moved to Pennsylvania where I taught business courses in a small college for two years. And that helped me to actually apply for permanent residency in the U.S., And I told the college that I will work there for two years, but then I want to move on because I didn't see myself necessarily as an academic careerist, if there's such a word. So then, you know, while I was finishing up all of that, teaching in this small town called Williamsport, Pennsylvania, I mean, it's really a very small town in the middle of central Pennsylvania. And I was back in touch with my professors at University of Cincinnati. They put me in touch with some folks who were connected to PNG and so on. So that's how I ended up joining PNG two years after I had finished my MBA. So you started in the 80s. And what was one of those early defining career moments? I joined in 1981 and I started in what used to be called the market research department. Today's world, I think that would be CMK. Consumer insights, basically. Yes, consumer insights, exactly. It was a little more structured sort of a thing. I mean, what they did in those days was conduct market research surveys and studies for either the R&D folks or the marketing folks. And once the study was done, it would be sent over and your role was kind of done. A couple of years into it, I just started to feel that while I'm doing all of this, I really am not in the middle of the decision-making process. In other words, what is done with the results of the survey? And I, I learned that that's really being done in brand management. It used to be called advertising in those days. So I approached my my boss and his boss and requested that I be considered for a transfer. At that time, nobody, no one from the market research department had transferred to marketing or advertising, as it was called. It was a big struggle. And I was told that, hey, it's not going to happen and it can't be and so on and so forth. Nobody's done it. 
you may not have the right profile and so on. Yet I kept pushing and said, okay, I understand, but at least I want the opportunity to be in front of the people who will make that assessment. And it became pretty, it became a, a tough decision, somewhat contentious because my market research management was not supportive of it. Very reluctantly, they forwarded my file to the marketing folks, HR in marketing, and they asked me to come over. And after one interview and another and another and another, surprise to my surprise, they offered me a role in marketing. And that was, it was kind of challenging, but it was also a moment of truth for me. Am I really going to push for what I think I want to do? Or am I going to step back and say, hey, I have a nice, comfortable job. It's at Procter & Gamble. It pays well and so on. I mean, why rock the boat? So I rocked the boat and somehow came out okay at the other end. And since then, I continued to rock the boat, not in a, in a bad sense, but continue to jump at interesting and intriguing opportunities that came my way at PNG. As it turned out, I didn't end up changing my company or my employer, but still had many different roles over the 30 years at PNG. So you've written a book years ago, and that's actually how I know about you. I was at a conference, mm -hmm. a, one of PNG's global conferences, mm -hmm. saw John Pepper speaking on a panel, and he mentioned your book. And mm -hmm. I like reading books and I had a flight back to New York. So mm -hmm. I walked outside. I don't mm -hmm. know if I met you, but I grabbed the book, paid the money mm -hmm. and devoured it on the, the plane back. And that book, it's a bit of a memoir, but mm -hmm. it's called When Tribesmen Came Calling. And there's, there's so many interesting facets of your story and your career in this book. But can you tell us the story that inspired the title and, and more importantly, the lesson you learned from that experience? Sure. The book is called, like you said, When Tribesmen Came Calling. The subtitle of the book is Building an Enduring American Business in Pakistan. And when I left PNG in early 2011, I wanted to sit down and write things about what I had seen and experienced in Pakistan. Originally, my thought was that I would write about some of the political happenings in Pakistan that I had had a close upfront seat to. And was not sure what I was writing and what it was about and so on. I originally thought of it as a series of blogs. I, I don't type too well, so I write longhand and I wrote 60, 65 pages and didn't quite know what to do with it. So I left it aside, just, just put it aside and forgot about it. Several years later, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Ethan Casey. He's still a very close friend, lives in Seattle. He has lived across many parts of Asia, and he's written several books, including two about Pakistan, where he lived for six months and so on. He, I just mentioned to him in the passing that, hey, you know, you are a, you're an author and so on, and I tried to write some stuff, but not quite sure. So long story short, he encouraged me to show him what I had written. And after reading my 60-odd -yard pages of handwritten stuff, he he wrote back to me saying, listen, this is very interesting and I can see this could be a book and, and you should write about it. So after some back and forth, we concluded that what I would write would be a memoir of my professional life. I learned a lot about the book writing process itself. I mean, you start with a certain, at least in my case, start with a certain thing in mind and you end up in a somewhat different place in the sense that I was originally planning to only write about my most recent four years in Pakistan. And it ended up being an entire memoir of my 30 years at PNG, including a lot about my post-retirement years. The book title comes from a very specific incident, which you have read about. I'd moved to Pakistan the first time around 
end of 1990, the company had charged me with starting the Procter & Gamble business or subsidiary in Pakistan. It was a really, really tough startup. And really, we, str- we struggled a lot through the early years because it was a tough market in many different ways. But about three years, three to four years into it, we were starting to feel like, okay, we, we are okay. We can, we can have a decent business in, in Pakistan. We ended up acquiring a soap manufacturing facility just about 30 miles, 25, 30 miles outside of Karachi in a, what is really a, a tribal area, even though it's close to a large city in hub. And HUB is the name of the town, Balochistan. It was an industrial estate. We bought the factory. And then a couple of weeks went by. The plant had just started operations under PNG management. And I was visited by a couple of tribesmen from the area. And they came and first under the guise of wanting to congratulate us for opening up a factory in their area and so on, offering us all kinds of help. And then they wanted us to do some favors for them. And while they were sitting in a conference room in our office, I was told by my assistant at the time that they had come in a Jeep with a couple of gunmen waiting in the Jeep downstairs. Anyhow, I politely spoke with them and and chatted with them for almost an hour. And in the end, we sent them home without giving them any favors, of course, which we were not going to do. But a couple of things I learned from that. One is that it was really, really important that I treat these people with a lot of cultural sensitivity. And the reason is that if I could have easily, you know, called in PNG security and got these people thrown out of there, and the next day they could have lobbed a hand grenade into our factory and we couldn't do anything about that, okay? But the point was that there was no reason to insult them, even though we weren't going to do them any favors. So just handling it like that was important. And I think that being from there and understanding the cultural sensitivities, the whole notion of saving face and so on was really important in my ability to handle them. So that's the kind of the story. Back to the title of the book, in the process of writing about the book, while I was I was writing, I kept brainstorming different different titles and I kept sending them to Ethan, who was acting as my editor. And he kept saying, eh, it's okay, but not really exciting. <laughs> so I had, in fact, I have a list somewhere, had brainstormed about 49 or 50 different potential titles <laughs> for the book in a very PNG way. I typed it all up and kept sending them to Ethan. And every time he was polite and I could just tell that he's not thrilled with it. And then he, he kept telling me that, don't worry about it. It will come to us one day. So one day I was just, and I would have lots of conversations with my family. I have a wife and my two, two grown-up kids. My son's a lawyer. My daughter has a graduate degree in journalism. She went to Columbia and she works for National Geographic now. So we were all sitting around our dinner table or breakfast table. And I was just saying that I keep thinking of this book title and I don't know, nothing exciting has come up. And my daughter said, Lena is her name. My, my, my daughter said, why don't you look at some other similar books and see what they have done? And I said, such as what? And she said, such as Three Cups of Tea. Greg Mortensen has written this book, and he picked a title which is not trying to describe the entirety of the book, but it just picks up on a one little episode that happened in the book. So that's what got me thinking. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And I started to think about the various incidents I have described in the book. And I thought about this particular incident. It's a very, very pivotal moment because, and I have written this in the, in the book, that at the end of that one hour long meeting, when I sent these tribesmen packing, 
is really when it dawned on me in a very clear way that Procter & Gamble can be successful in Pakistan while adhering fully to P&G's principles and values. Because people had said to me that, listen, there will come a time when you just will have to bend a little bit. And a little bending a little bit, I mean, I also learned that there is no such thing as bending a little bit when it comes to basic principles and values. You either stick by them or you basically don't. So I, you know, I, th- I thought of this. These tribesmen, when they came asking for favors, they were specifically, they had made up a story saying that we have some students and we want to, who are really good from our tribe and we want to give them gold medals. And of course, I had politely declined to f- offer them money for gold medals. So I suggested to Ethan that how about gold medal for the students as the title of the book. You know, I'm glad we didn't go with this. And he's like, <laughs> you know, he said, yeah. I probably wouldn't have bought that book, Kasser. <laughs> probably wouldn't have bought that book. Yeah. So he he came back with a suggestion and he said, he said, how about gunmen waiting in the Jeep? Okay. I also would not have bought that book. <laughs> yeah. And, and I said to Ethan, I said, Ethan, that's interesting and it's intriguing, but it really brings forth the worst stereotypes that yeah, exist. Yeah, the Western view. The Western in, view. Exactly. Right. In the Western mind about places like Pakistan or other emerging markets, particularly in rough areas. So I kept thinking and all of a sudden it just popped in my mind. How about when tribesmen came calling? And it doesn't say anything negative. It doesn't say anything positive. It just says that there was an incident which was somewhat unique. When it, and and it, lets, it lets the reader or the potential reader fill in the gaps. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's the it's the mystery box. I don't know what's in it exactly. Yeah, you you have to read to understand the story. Yes, ex- exactly. And it's also in some ways it encap- encapsulates in a larger sense the experience of working in a place like Pakistan or even Ukraine. There are all these unusual. Oh, it's no Brixton, to be clear. So. <laughs> yes, nor is it Cincinnati, right? <laughs> <laughs> you were there in the eighties. Very different. <laughs> yes. So anyhow, that's how I came up with it. If my daughter hadn't suggested to think the way that she did, I probably would have kept thinking of titles such as success in adversity and all kinds of things that are so kind of ho-hum, which of course, Ethan didn't like any of those. But he, this one, as soon as I mentioned this, and when he said gunman waiting in a Jeep, that got me thinking, okay, so this is an interesting incident. Let me find a better way to say this, which isn't negative, which isn't stereotypical. So that's how that's how this title came about. Well, even in the telling of the story, Kasser, in the story, it's you in the story itself and you telling the story. This is a very measured approach. And I think that's, to your point, you could have called security. You could have done any number of things to Mm -hmm. to still stick to your principles. But I do think that was an advantage of you being a local. And I want to probe on that a little bit. You didn't grow up in the same socioeconomic sphere of the tribesmen. Pakistan is a vast country with lots of different cultural pockets. But you knew there was something deeper going on and to approach it from a measured standpoint. Did you, as of coming from an educated family, in Pakistan, did you have a perspective on tribal areas prior to becoming educated, going to school, going to work at PG, and even coming back? Like, what was informed? Had it been me, it mm-hmm. wouldn't have been me, right? But had it been an American or a Canadian or a Japanese person who come in, they might have had a different approach. They still would have stuck to their PVPs, their purpose, values, and principles, but their approach might have been different. And so, I'm guess I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what in that moment was informed by you being a Pakistani man? 
operating in a situation in Pakistan? Yeah, growing up, my father was employed in various government departments. So we moved around a lot across different cities within what is Pakistan now and what used to be East Pakistan. So that had given me a lot of exposure to different parts of the country. You know, just like India, for example, Pakistan is made up of so many different provinces with many different languages, some of which I don't even understand. So we lived in those kinds of areas, but there are certain traits that are somewhat common across different parts. And one of them is people want to not be insulted or feel very strongly about not wanting to be insulted. People can be a little bit overly sensitive from a Western point of view about what they may consider as perceived insults. So there are a few traits like that. So it was even though I, I don't speak Balochi, I have never lived in any part of Balochistan or other tribal areas of Pakistan, it was easy for me to see that these people have come there. In fact, in the middle of our conversation, they started to get angry with me and said, listen, we have never been sent back empty-handed from any place that we have visited. And I mean, some of it was theater and some of it was that they were trying to turn it into a matter of quote-unquote prestige. So, I mean, those were th those things were easy to see for me, even without being immersed in that tribal culture. It's the, at least in East Asia, and you reference this as well, the idea of face, it kind of permeates the subcontinent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. So shifting back to your career, is there anything... Or are there any lessons from things that didn't work out? Because you, you read these bios of execs and one amazing job with business success followed by the next, but there's adversity faced along the way. Are there any stories of things that didn't work out the way you thought they would have? Yeah, absolutely. When I first decided to ask for and take the job in Pakistan, moving from Cincinnati to Pakistan in a startup venture, which was very, very ill-defined at the moment. I thought I'd be gone for three years, which was sort of the agreement with the company. I ended up being in Pakistan for five and then another couple of years in Ukraine. So by the time I came back to the US, I had been away for eight years. And it was a very, very, very tough transition for me. Nothing had prepared me for it. I had been warned when I was wanting to leave Cincinnati to go to Pakistan that do not underestimate the difficulty of reintegrating back into into the U.S. organization. And yet I did underestimate it. And I said, I mean, how, how tough can that be? I mean, I joined the company in Cincinnati. I was not a foreign employee who had transferred into Cincinnati. This was my home base. So it was very, very tough. And I came back. In fact, even the company struggled to figure out where exactly could they place me. Dirk Yager, who was the CEO when I was returning back, had personally asked me to take this job because he was running Asia when the Pakistan startup venture had been conceived. So he found an assignment for me and got me back. And really, there's nothing, two things happened that were very, very tough. First, there was nothing that had prepared me to work on a customer, large CBD or customer development team, which was the Kmart team in that case, what skill set was needed and so on. Frankly, I had to develop quickly. But the other thing is that after having dealt with so many issues in Ukraine, in Pakistan, in Ukraine, I dealt with major government relations and business crises where I had to go and meet with Madeleine Albright, who was a secretary of state at the time. I had to meet with Al Gore, who had come in, was the vice president at the time, dealing with the U.S. ambassador all the time, trying to navigate our way out of a really tough bind the company was in. So 
now all of a sudden being in this job where you're in a sales job at Kmart. <laughs> yes, I'm in a sales job at Kmart. Not even a sales job. I was a marketing person on a sales team. Yeah. Very, very ill-defined role. And frankly, first couple of years I it felt to me like I will not survive this or should I even try to survive this, to be very honest? But gradually... Kassar, I have to jump in. Why would you feel like... It was almost like giving up. Why, why would you go there? It was not fulfilling. See, that was the thing. I mean, every day I would go to work and I would have some phone calls, some meetings and so on, internal or with the customer. And I would say to myself, I didn't, I didn't get trained to do this kind of work. And there, if I could get agreement from the marketing director at Kmart to run a special promotion on Tide or Bounce or whatever in a certain given week. I mean, that was a big win to be celebrated in the KMR team. And I would come back to my desk and say, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so this was, and then something happened in my own mind. And I started to remind myself of all the great things that I have been through at PNG and all the reasons that I'd stayed with the company and all the things that I had enjoyed. And I said, okay, here's an assignment that I'm in and it's not so fulfilling right now, but this is a great place to be. And there are going to be other steps beyond this, which frankly were not clear to me or to anybody at the time, but it turned out that way. You know, Other assignments opened up. I got into a global role, which I really, really enjoyed, gave me a chance to travel around the world and, and connect with PNG organizations everywhere, which was, you know, again, this desire to explore the world, whether within the PNG context or not, was a big part of what kept me happy. So this is how I, I tried to recalibrate myself. And I was for four years on the Kmart team. First couple of years were tough. And then once my mindset changed that, okay, this is the assignment that the company wants me to do right now. And let me see how I can have my own personal impact in this role. Then all of a sudden, everything changed. And that was another piece of learning. So much of what you experience is in your own mind. The environment didn't change. The job didn't change. And all of a sudden, this job, which was so boring and so unfulfilling, I should say, for me, became quite interesting once my mindset changed. It, and it's almost part of what gave you that was the perspective of this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm -hmm. So you've referenced different people along the way. And a lot of us have mentors. Who have been some of your mentors? And again, what did you model from them to, to help you through your career? Sure. Just like most of us who have been at PNG, I've had several mentors and almost the list would be quite long, but a few people really particularly stand out. First was one of my first brand managers, Beth Kaplan. I was on the Always brand. It was another interesting experience. There were seven people on the Always brand, six women and me, okay, <laughs> on that business. And it was quite an interesting experience, but it was really, really educational. I sometimes would joke and say my life was never the same again after having worked on that business. But Beth Kaplan, she she really mentored me in the sense that she took me under her wing and, and she decided that she's going to help and coach and guide me as much as she can. She was as invested in my success. I was an assistant brand manager on Always. And I could just feel that she was as invested in my success as I was. And, the, and that was a great feeling. And so that took me through my first several years working in the marketing function. I was an always, and then I got promoted to brand manager on Love's Diapers. And then after that, I would think that once I moved to Pakistan, originally 
the PNG geographic structure was such that Pakistan was reporting into the Far East, into the Hong Kong office. And the company soon realized that the economic and cultural connections of Pakistan were not... They so are much. very different. <laughs> yes. They, while, while Pakistan and India used to be the same country and, and they're joining each other and they share a lot of cultural commonalities, over the years, the economic and cultural ties of Pakistan are more with the Middle East. So Pakistan was reassigned to the what used to be called the Middle East Africa Division. And Fuad Kuretim took over. And he was probably one of the best bosses that I have ever had. Best leaders, I should say. Not even a boss, but best leaders of a business. How? Uh, when, he, when he took over, he did something very interesting. He called me and he said, hey, listen, I'm really happy to have Pakistan be part of my region. And I hope you are as excited. And I will come over to start to learn your business. And I don't want to come in for a one-day or two-day trip, which has been the norm in the past. He said, I'm going to come for a whole week, and I want you to show me and tell me everything that the country is, that the market is, and that PNG is trying to do. So he came, and we started a series of presentations to him. And every so often, we would ask him the first day, the second day, so Fuad, what do you think? What do you think? And he would just refuse to say what he thought. He said, no, I'm just listening. He said, I'm listening. Before I leave this, you know, f- from this trip, I will tell you what I think, but I'm not going to tell you now because I'm still learning. So we spent three days in the office presenting to him what we were doing, all the good and the bad. The co- business was still struggling a lot, and we were just not getting sales anywhere close to what we had hoped. And then I took him on a tour of a couple of other cities in Pakistan. So we traveled to the northern part of the country and so on and spent some time going to markets in Karachi. Then we came back. And on the last day, he said, okay, I have seen now enough that I can have a educated viewpoint about this. And then he started to tell us, which was amazing. I mean, I tell you, just having a senior executive, your boss, Take the time to listen so carefully before he starts to offer advice. The typical mode is that senior managers come in, and I've done this, others have done this, come in and they rely on their vast experience from other places and feel that very quickly they can start to give their reaction. Fuad did just the opposite, and that was amazing. So he would listen, and then he would challenge us. At the end of all of this, he and I had sort of a just one-on-one meeting, and he said, I've been looking at the presentations or listening to the presentations you guys have been giving me. And he said, one thing that really bewilders me, you're doing everything right from what I can tell in your hair care business, but the business is performing very poorly. Why is that? So he was just asking me, just literally in so many words. And I said, Fuad, I think the one issue that we have is that our pricing is too high. And he said, then why don't you fix that? And this was his way of guiding you through a series of decisions. And so why don't you fix that? And I said, Fuad, we are bleeding in the hair care business. We are losing a lot of money. How can I afford to take a price cut on hair care? And he said, well, if you don't, you will have to shut down the business. <laughs> <You're toast. laughs> yes. So he said, what do you have to lose? And, you know, all of a sudden, a light bulb went in my head. And I was like, wow, not only was he challenging me, he was also guiding me as to what could be, or at least giving me permission to take risks. Very quickly after he left, I I brought in my my brand manager and the financial analyst, and we sat down and we started to run some calculations. And I said, what if we were selling bottles and sachets, single-use sachets? 
And I said, what if we take our price down on sachets from this to this and bring it into a better coinage price point and also lower the volume in the sachet? How much business do we have to grow to break even on this proposition? And the financial analyst told me that we would have to double the business to break even, basically. And I said, doubling the business is a, is a tall order, but let's give it a go. We made wow. that price change. We made that price change and we went from selling half a million sachets a month to 5 million sachets a month. I tell you, it was, it was eye-opening for me. I mean, no, I mean, I could not have dreamed. And this is not something I've written in my, in my book about. And later on, one of the sales managers who used to work at PNG wrote to me and said, hey, I read your book and you haven't said anything about this hair care <laughs> thing. <laughs> I said, I'm sure there are many, many things that I've forgotten. And then he was using my book to teach at the Institute of Business Administration in Karachi. So just for his purposes, I wrote up a case study about this hair care experience and I sent it to him so he could use it even though it was not in my book. So that was an amazing experience. So we said, okay, 80% of our business is in bottles. So we had experimented with 20% and have seen great results. Let's do something with bottles. We took the price down on the shampoo bottles and we were doing this with Head & Shoulders first by 10%. And literally in two to three months, the volume doubled. We took it down another 10% and the volume doubled again. So by taking 20% price drop over a period of, let's say, five or six months, more than made we, up for it. We, had, we had quadrupled the business and all of a sudden this business that was bleeding. And once your volume grows so much, all kinds of other efficiencies start to kick in. We were saving money on so many other things, supply chain, logistics related things, marketing dollars were obviously flowing to the business and so on. So those were some amazing experiences. But really, I give all the credit to Fuad Khuretum for sensing it, seeing it. And really nudging me to make the decisions that had to be made. And he, he used to say that if you, if you sell 5 million cases in a year, there's no way that you are not going to make a decent amount of profit. And if you don't, there's no way that you will make any profit. Our friend John Pepper says that it's not just what you do, it's how you make people feel. And I think in that moment, Fouad, through listening and letting you come to the realization yourself, he almost gave you the confidence to take your foot off the brakes and take some risks. Absolutely. Yep. Two other very influential mentors that I have had have been Bob McDonald and John Pepper. Bob McDonald was particularly very helpful towards the later part of my career as I was considering applying again or looking again into possibly going back to Pakistan. I went and talked to him when I found out the position was open, and he was very, very encouraging. I've written about that entire episode in my book, but I got to know Bob when he was general manager of the Philippines, and I was first assigned in Pakistan. Met him a few times in various regional meetings, but uh, little did I know at that time that much later on in my career, I will have so much of a close connection with him. The other mentor, of course, has been John Pepper. He visited Pakistan back in the mid-90s when I was there in my first assignment. And he came for a couple of days. It was a wonderful visit, very, very energizing for the organization. He was in, in Karachi. Then we traveled together to Lahore and got to take him to various markets and so on. Again, extremely energizing visit for the whole organization. So both of these mentors have really been most important and, and really, really played a key role in my own development. With John Pepper, he and I have both stayed in close contact 
even after I've left PNG, I write to him once in a while, we exchange ideas and so on. I meet him off and on when I go to Cincinnati on various visits. So again, really, now that I'm not in PNG and I step back and see the role both of them played in my later career, as well as uh, in my post-PNG life, uh, it has been very, very fulfilling. I want to shift gears a little bit to personal and then kind of the present and, and the future. But by the time you were my age, you were managing a lot of young professionals in, in different markets in different countries that were entering the life stage of family. Mm-hmm. How did you coach them about finding balance? Did you, ha- did you feel like you had balance or were there lessons you learned from your own balance, taking your family all over the world? I felt that I had balance because I had great buy-in from my wife. She wasn't working outside the home at the time, and, and we had small children when we first moved from Cincinnati to Karachi. Our, both of our kids were born in Cincinnati. And we did that. First and foremost, I was really excited about the opportunity to start a PNG business. And secondly, we were both, my wife and I, were excited about the opportunity to connect back to our home, go home. Home, go home and place of origin and so on. But more importantly, for our children to have exposure to grandparents and aunts and uncles and so on and so forth. But one of the things I learned about balance in life, work-life balance, is that it it's not about having X number of hours to devote to your family and having Y number of hours to devote to your work and so on. I mean, that's not how it really should or can work. It's all about being able to attend to the priorities in your life at moments in time that demand it. I mean, there have been times when I have dropped everything and dedicated myself to my family and the work just continued to go on while I pulled out for short periods of time. And there have been times when it has been the other way around, where my family understood that I just have to do a certain amount of travel or have to be away a certain amount of time. And so the family would have to cope with that. I learned there was a a leadership workshop or seminar that I attended many years ago. And one of the things they taught was that balance is not about giving a certain amount of weightage to different components of your life, but it is about making sure that you can tilt in the direction that is needed at any given moment. It's like yeah, it's infrastructure a, building. It's infrastructure yes. And, building. and it's, it's like riding a bicycle. You know, you don't try to put 50% of your weight on either side of the, the bike. You lean one way sometimes and lean the other way sometimes. And this is how you stay afloat, basically. And I think I was, I was able to do that. And, and obviously with a lot of support with my family, there were times when I was just not there. It's a small example. My wife never lets me forget this because when we were in Karachi, my daughter, she was maybe two years old at the time. And, and she went to a, a, a preschool there for a couple of years. And I never once was able to visit that preschool. <laughs> and w- when I tell my kids who've both grown up now that, hey, I was always there for you guys, my wife will remind me that, hey, you never even visited a preschool <laughs> where she was for two years. And but- yet you put it on the record, Kasser. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to alumni entrepreneur Ann Chambers, co-founder and CEO of 17 Ways, a B2B marketplace for purpose-driven brands. And I guess I got to ask, is this kind of related to the UN Sustainable Development Goals? Well, yeah, it actually is. We actually call it an SDG impact marketplace. So it's totally related to the Sustainable Development Goals, which, you know, are the goals are a collection of 17 global goals that were identified by the United Nations in 2015. And um, they're kind of a blueprint to achieve a more sustainable future for everybody. So the goals include things like no hunger, zero poverty, 
good health and well-being, climate action. They really run the gamut of all the issues that need to be addressed in order for us all to have a better future. It's interesting, Paul Pullman, who used to be the CEO of Unilever, and he's actually a P&G alum as well. Paul says that addressing the sustainable development goals is the greatest economic opportunity of our lifetime. So we're really excited about being in the space. It's very cool. That that's really awesome. Uh, I guess how would a company even get started working with with a platform like yours? Well, if you think about it, we're kind of like a Match.com and an Upwork. So from the Upwork standpoint, we uh, make it really easy for enterprise big companies like a CPG company, Unilever, P&G, you name it. They can get on the platform and using. 17 ways they can just have one single vendor where they can identify lots of new suppliers without having to create new vendor opportunities for each one of them.、Um, so that makes it really easy. And then the, I think a really important thing for the enterprise companies, the big big companies, is we create great reporting for them at the end of the year. So that's also important for their CSR reports. And how many members do you have on the platform? We have right now over 200 members, and they are mainly right now they're mainly B Corps, which I、uh, love. We're a certified B Corp too, and a lot of them are women-owned. So it's been a really interesting thing to see who's who the early adopters are. What are the types of companies that are on the platform? Can you give some examples? Well, I love all my children the same, so I'm not going to promote any company right now. But <laughs> there's everything from incredible food companies. To、um, branding companies, consulting companies, we've got a lot of solar energy, all the things that you might expect you'd find in a sustainable collection of of companies. This is really cool. So, how can people find out more about Seventeen Ways? You can find out more at SeventeenWays.co. Awesome. Best of luck and thanks so much, Raman. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And now back to our show. If you had an email time machine,、uh-huh. what advice would you give your younger self? What I would say is that keep pursuing your passions. It sounds like a cliche, but keep pursuing what interests you. But be willing to make adjustments along the way because it's not like you know I want to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to hit all of these or check all of these boxes. Things change as you experience things, and so be willing to adjust that. But have some kind of a compass, internal compass, as to what feels right to you, what feels interesting to you, and 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 what doesn't. The other thing that I would say to myself is that there might be periods of adversity, and just kind of take it with a grain of salt, and and try to live through them because you will come out at the other end. In a better place, I came very close to basically flaming out when I had returned back from the international assignments, and I'm so glad that I found in myself. I just did this deep digging and said, "Let me just remind myself why I have been so happy with this company for so long." At that point, I'd been 18 years with P&G, so I think that this is what I would say. Again, I have always felt that I could. Accommodate and adjust, and yet when opportunities presented themselves that looked interesting, I leapt at them and did whatever I could to break down the the barriers. So, Kasser, since retiring, you've maintained a never retire mentality. You are pretty active. You've taught at GW, George Washington's Business School. I kind of view you as a little bit of a citizen journalist, writing op eds for 
the Pakistani American perspective in the Pakistani press. You've served on a lot of boards about ending poverty in the developing markets, specifically Pakistan and American Muslim relations. One, how do you find the time? <laughs> I mean, I know you're retired, but it's a tall order of tasks. And more importantly, what, what motivates you to keep going? Because these, these aren't the things you were doing before. Yeah, when I decided to retire from PNG, I wanted to move on and do things different from what I had done. Originally, I thought that maybe somewhere in the development sector, I'll, I'll find a role. But when I came back here and started to look at that, I realized that my own profile from the viewpoint of the development sector wasn't necessarily attractive to them. And then I realized that really, I, I, I don't need to have a certain amount of income or a certain amount, certain kind of employment to move forward. So I, I started to think about what it is that really att- attracted me, interested me. And I had already decided, my wife and I had decided that we would move to Washington, D.C. area. We'd been exposed to this area because our daughter was going to college here and we would visit her off and on. But also because it offered an opportunity to have a quote-unquote, active retirement. There are three things that I have focused on in terms of my own work. After the teaching part and writing the book part, there are three things that I'm focusing on. One is poverty alleviation as a broad generic item, but really helping certain communities in these emerging countries where that I'm from and or I have been connected to. Right now, I'm involved with organizations in, in Pakistan, but also in Bangladesh. Then the situation of the American Muslim community here, and I am on the board of American Muslim Institution, which is an organization that's working on that. And the third thing that I haven't yet updated on my LinkedIn profile is that I've just recently joined the board of an organization called Institute for Islamic Christian and Jewish Studies. It is an interfaith organization that's all about teaching all of us about all of these faiths. So frankly, you have time for things that you like to do. I say to people, people ask me often, how do you spend your time? What do you do in retirement? And I say, really, I do nothing, yet I don't have any free time. I keep busy. So there is a way to do it at, as long as you do things that are of interest and where you can have an impact, of, even in a, at a small level. Writing is interesting. I started to write blogs that I would post on my publisher's website and then my own website. And just as a sort of a stab in the dark. I sent it to this newspaper in Pakistan. They they are published from three different cities. They're the largest circulation newspaper with a very simplistic name called The News International. It's an English language newspaper. I just sent it to them and said, listen, I, I write from a Pakistani American or immigrant American perspective, and here's a sample of what I've written. What do you guys think? And they said, I'd been introduced to the editor through some common friends. And he wrote back to me saying, hey, we really like it. This is great. We will publish this. And would you be willing to write every other week for us from the same kind of lens? And I started to do that. By now, I think I've published about maybe 50 op-ed pieces over the last couple of years. It also gives me an outlet. There's a lot of things that can get frustrating with things going on in the world and things going on in our country. And this gives me an opportunity to vent a little bit as well. And that that helps me personally. From time to time, I hear from people who read my pieces that, hey, this, this brought us some interesting information that we weren't aware of. Because people, there's a lot of interest across the world in what's happening in the U.S. Because one way or the other, United States policies and United States politics impact other people across the world. So getting that sort of perspective, people have found helpful, and I'm sure others may have found it to be unhelpful. That's the nature of opinion, right? 
So this is what I'm spending my time on and also trying to spend uh, more time with family, which I have enough time. <laughs> At the beginning of this year, I had told my wife, Naila, I said, I want to travel as much as I can this year. While we have the time, we have the resources, and we have the health and the energy. Well, God had other plans, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> no one's traveling a lot right now, my friend. Absolutely. We took one trip. I went to Pakistan, then I went to Bangladesh, and then traveled through Bangkok and Istanbul, came back literally in the nick of time before everything shut down. And now we are all pretty much locked at home. So we can make our plans, but sometimes it's hard to make them happen. There's a really beautiful piece of Urdu poetry you quote in your book. And mm -hmm. it roughly translates to, I think, as you said, instead of complaining about the darkness of the night, it's much better to just light the one candle you can. And you prescribe that quote to how Pakistanis have to take the initiative to solve for issues that their officials might not be doing. And I, I flagged that page when I read the book a few years ago, and I was catching up ahead of this chat. And I read it with my own frustration of what's going on or not going on in our own country. How do you think that statement is relevant beyond Pakistan in the current world situation? This is not a new thought. The particular couplet that I cite is from a Pakistani poet by the name of Ahmad Faraz, and he wrote this maybe 15, 20 years ago, but many people have said this. And really, I have seen a lot of frustration, first in Pakistan, but here, everywhere, about so much is wrong in the world. There's so much that we would like to see different, but what can one person do? And frankly, if all of us start to think that way, what is what hope is there to change things? I think Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. And it's the same sentiment in a way. And really, I, I feel that if one can fix one little thing, fix from however we see it, in our lifetime, we have done something good. And if everybody started to feel that way, I think much can change. So this is, and I originally thought of it as I observed in Pakistan, having been there in the early 90s and then being back there in 2006, 7, 8, that a lot of people were taking things in their own hands and, and uh, nonprofit organizations and charities were setting up hospitals and setting up schools and all kinds of things were being done. Yet it's very easy for people to say, well, this organization runs 1,000 schools but we really need 100,000. Well, is that a way? I mean, if, if you think that way, then even the 1,000 starts to become trivial, which it certainly is not. So this is a sentiment that I, I try to just keep reminding myself that it's one little thing. If I can do that, let me just do it for the good. Your perspective is, and maybe it's more informed, but it, it feels more optimistic than sometimes I think people in the younger generation feel, even though we are picking up shovels and trying to do things. As of this recording, we still find ourselves in the middle of a crisis, health, an impending economic one. As someone who sat in the leadership chair of a large organization and sat across the table from other leaders in, in government and other businesses, what would if you were still in those chairs sitting across the table, what more should we expect or demand of our leaders? One of the things we're learning through this health crisis, the pandemic, is that leadership really matters. If you look across the world, we are seeing so many different outcomes, good and bad ones, from this whole pandemic and how different countries have reacted to it. And I don't think it takes too much of a leap of faith to see that in places where the leaders were either not really taking a strong leadership role or were even taking a, a you know, posture that 
minimize the risk and minimize the bad outcomes that could happen, those countries have suffered the most. And these are in hard numbers. I mean, it's not really a matter of opinion. So leadership really matters. And as I saw in a place like Pakistan, and really it was such a unique thing, I went there and started to hire people. We were four of us went from the US, started to hire young 22, 23-year-old kids from straight out of colleges and universities. And, and they would look to the four of us as if we were, just the four of us were Procter & Gamble. And they would look to us to say, okay, so what should I do now? And here's something that's happened. What should I do? And we could, I saw close up the value of, of leadership. And now we're seeing it on a larger global scale, the value of leadership. I mean, at a minimum, we expect them to tell people what is going on, what could happen, how do we avoid certain bad outcomes, and really be out there modeling behavior. I tell you, that is one thing. I mean, I would hold a lot of sessions about Procter & Gamble's purpose, values, and principles with the young employees there. But frankly, none of them would have mattered if I couldn't model it myself. Walk really, the walk, right? Absolutely. And when you have a young organization, you have to model it, not just in sort of low-key ways, but you have to do it in a way that people will see. I mean, instances would come up when people would come to me and say, hey, this is what this government department is asking of us. How should we handle it? And you would very clearly tell them how to handle it. And then you would make sure that many people in the organization would know what happened and how we handled it. So in the same way, you know, this kind of honesty and overt walking the walk. I mean, if the healthcare experts are saying that we should be wearing masks, then our leadership leaders should be wearing masks, but doing it visibly so and publicly so instead of giving the message that it's okay to flaunt the guidance or the guidelines that are being provided by experts. So I think you, you see what I'm saying here. And unfortunately, we're in a place where there's a huge question mark about the leadership that our country is receiving and many other countries are receiving in the middle of this pandemic. This is a test of leadership, honestly. I mean, in routine times, routine behavior can work, but these are not normal times. And these are not times where just sort of doing the normal thing is going to be able to get us out of this crisis. And we are in the middle of it. And yet, our government wants to act as if the crisis is behind us, which it is not. And wishing it away is not going to make it happen. I mean, again, in emerging markets, I mean, every day, every day, and I mean that without exaggeration, some unexpected thing would come up that you had to deal with, government policy or some kind of security situation or whatever. And you couldn't just say, well, never mind, tomorrow will be okay. Because tomorrow would not be okay unless you dealt with today the way it needed to be dealt with. That's my overall take on this. And I am fearful in the sense that I am a little bit concerned, more than a little bit concerned about how things are and where things are headed, just in terms of lack of good leadership. Well, Castor, this has been a, just a really fascinating and deep conversation based on your experience, but we've got to wrap up soon. So I want to shift gears and to maybe ask three or four more light questions with, with some quick answers. What do you think? Sure, absolutely. What is something about you that surprises people when they find out? Depending upon how someone has interacted with me, I can come across as a low-key person having a very sort of protected life. But I, right from the beginning, I have uh, jumped into things that were seen as 
very adventurous. And sometimes people don't know. Even my kids are surprised when I tell them these stories. When I finished high school at the age of 18, a very close friend of mine and I decided to take a road trip from Pakistan through Afghanistan, through Iran, through Turkey, by buses and trains, all the way we got to Athens, and then traveled back. Did the whole thing in one month on 120 US dollars. And uh, all kinds of adventures happened during that trip. But when I tell people that, people are surprised. Wow, you did that? (laughs) And I say, yes, I did that. And I think that was sort of beginning of my adventuresome life, I should say. Are you more of a book, film, or a TV guy? Very much more a book person. And the current environment has given me the opportunity to read a lot, which I have been doing. So, and I'm thankful for that. Very interesting. And what's a book that you might give to a friend? I read three books in succession by an Israeli author, Yuval Noah Harari. And his first book, which was published, uh, I think in 2014, about six years ago, is called Sapiens. And I would, a short history of humankind or a short history of humanity, something like that is the subtitle. Wonderful book, greatly educational. I would strongly recommend that book to anyone, as well as his two subsequent books, because they carry on the same theme. But the first book is the foundation of all that he has to say. I would strongly recommend Sapiens to anyone. What's one new thing that you still want to do? My passion is travel, honestly. I would like to travel as much as I can, particularly to places that I've not had a chance to go to. What's one? I've not been to Australia and New Zealand. I've not been to Scandinavian countries. I've not been to Patagonia, (laughs) just to name a few. (laughs) And very different corners of the earth. Yes, absolutely. My wife and I don't always agree on the kind of travel we would like to do. So we have to somehow find the common ground. And very often I take trips without her on my own, which is which she's less and less inclined to let me do because the kids aren't living at home anymore. They're living in their own households nearby. But yes, I would like to travel. The other thing I try to dabble with, I try to learn a little bit Pakistani classical music singing and realize that I can only go so far <laughs> with this. But it is a passion of mine. I don't have to sing, but I can listen to music and I enjoy it. I have I think probably about 1,500, 1,800 CDs that I've collected over the years. And I know that I haven't even listened to half of them properly. And now you don't listen to CDs anymore. (laughs) Spotify or whatever. Yeah. And and I have a a Spotify subscription. And I was asking somebody, how do I know that I'll get songs of my interest here and so on? And they said, well, this is 7 million songs. And if you can't find anything here of interest to you, then we don't know where you can find that. (laughs) (laughs) And I have it in my car. So when I'm driving, I can easily go to Spotify and I can pick the genre, pick whatever, listen to random stuff that I I enjoy. Sometimes not, you switch over to something else. But that's been really wonderful, great aspect of technology for us in this time. What was your favorite thing to do in Cincinnati? You know, (laughs) I used to go to Eden Park and drive through there. I used to live there. Is that right? Wind my way through Eden Park and then ultimately come out in Mount Adams usually or get down to Columbia Pike the other way. And I somehow always found that very, very peace-giving, you know, I mean, very, very... uh, The winding roads you could get lost in. Yes, yes. And it was just big open space, trees and so on. There's the Cincinnati Art Museum somewhere in there. There's a conservatory. So really interesting. I, I enjoyed doing that. I lived in Cincinnati off and on 
for a total of 14 years, 16 years, I think, in several chunks. But this was one thing that I always, always tried to do. And whenever I would have out of town visitors, I would take them there and we would, I would take them to the overlook from where you could see the Ohio River. That was my most, most fun thing to do in Cincinnati. And I could do it by myself as well as with the visitors. Who's someone out there that you still want to get coffee with? Lots of people, frankly, have a hard time thinking of any one person, probably no politician, honestly. <laughs> and people who are doing work for the betterment of the world. I mean, if I could have, have had a chance to meet with Nelson Mandela or people like that. And now I know a lot of people who at a much smaller scale are doing amazing things to bring some light to some dark corner of humanity. And those are the kinds of people that I would like to spend time with and learn from them or at least hear them out and see how they're able, what drives their passion. Recently, I visited Bangladesh and I spent some time with an organization there that's doing work in certain refugee camps there and how they are trying to uplift these people. It was an amazing experience. Those are the kinds of people, they're not necessarily household names, but very interesting folks that you can learn a lot from, I have learned a lot from. So to wrap it up, what is one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you would give to the next generation of leaders? What I would say is to deeply connect with themselves as to what excites them and what is of interest to them. And it can't be, I just want to rise to the highest level of, in the corporate ladder. I mean, that's not a thing. So in reality, what kinds of things do you do that really fulfills you the most and then build a career around that or try to build a career around that because you will have most success anyone will have most success when they're doing things that they really enjoy that's one the other one is that while you're pursuing that sort of a track stay flexible because things will happen new things will come up that you may not have thought of or you may not that may not be on the roadmap so to speak but keep your eyes and ears open and and Think about where you are and, and what looks interesting. And if that's different from what you may have thought a year or two ago, fine, so be it, because things will not remain the same, especially in, in the times that we are living in. I mean, the pace of technological change is, is so fast that we can't really take it all. And, and so the more people can get focused on, here's what really matters to me and here's what really excites me, then you can sift through all that's coming your way and pick and choose the things that you really want to get engaged in. That's the only way that's, that we can thrive and, and frankly cope with where we are today. Well, Kasser, this has just been such a fun conversation. And I want to thank you, not just for the work and the thoughts you put down on paper over the years, but just sharing your stories and continuing to do so. No, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you and to have others listen to parts of it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode.
I was a director and I thought I wanted a career change to marketing on this idea of the greener grass, in spite of the fact that many mentors told me that everything about me indicates that supply chain could be the best place for me. But I moved into it and I was really unhappy and I rediscovered my passion that I need to be where people are. Where can I guide the, the organization towards something where the team work is the pulse of every minute. And I was lucky enough that some people believed in me and they gave me the opportunity to come back. And ever since I was a supply chain person, the happiest of them. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.